This podcast contains violent adult themes and is not suitable for younger audiences. The eyes were very cold and lifeless, just black. I mean, the guy was a true psychopath. She was left in a creek bed. He treats females like chattels. He doesn't see them as being human. He was an absolute creeper, a guy that would go out on his own and pick vulnerable people. She was out in the open. She was naked. He's he's done something evil. Her throat had been cut. You're in a cell with a psychopath. Building a wild animal loose on society. He has no remorse. I'm Michelle Gately, and this is Predator. Two weeks into Leonard John Fraser's second murder trial, everything seemed to be running smoothly. That is until prosecutor Paul Rutledge stood up to address the court on the 10th of April 2003. What came next was unprecedented and set off a media frenzy across the world. It was both a miracle and a scandal. And it would make this murder trial one of Australia's most bizarre, because one of the victims had just come back to life. The trial was on, and uh, I got the phone call from a police officer at the Rockhampton station and said, "Um, Natasha Ryan's alive. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, she's alive. I said, how do you know? And he he said, because she's sitting across the table from me right now. There was quite a bit of media attention when Natasha went missing in 1998. Perhaps it was because she was still a young teenager, where there didn't initially seem anything too suspicious about Julie, Beverly and Sylvia's disappearances. After all, tens of thousands of people go missing in Australia each year, and only a handful are due to some malicious act. But Natasha's disappearance was out of character, and her parents, Jenny and Robert, feared the worst, because she hadn't taken anything with her when she left. She'd last been seen in July 1998, taking her dog for a walk. Almost five years later, prosecutor Paul Rutledge would make the bombshell announcement in court. He said, Your Honour, I am pleased to inform the court that Leonard John Fraser is not guilty of the murder of Natasha Ann Ryan. Natasha Ryan is alive. It's important to remember here that Fraser had confessed to Natasha's murder. He gave prison informant Alan Quinn very detailed descriptions about taking Natasha to an abandoned house on a rural property where he stabbed her and buried her body using a trench digger. As it turned out, Fraser had lied about everything, and in a bizarre turn of events, Natasha had to give evidence at the trial of the man who was accused of murdering her. Morning Bulletin editor Fraze Pierce walks us through the drama that unfolded when Natasha, now a young woman, emerged from hiding. And I do remember the day was the day that the editor and the chief of staff at the time were upstairs in a some sort of training seminar and were, I told me they were not to be interrupted under any circumstances, and that is any circumstances. So the story, possibly, of the decade was unfolding and I had to take leadership. And I remember only sending over one photographer and one reporter to the police station to cover this. Prosecutors had pulled Robert Ryan aside during court proceedings on the 10th of April with shocking news his daughter was alive. Robert couldn't believe it until Natasha revealed the nickname he'd given her as a little girl. He was handed a mobile phone when Natasha said, I love you, Dad, this is your grasshopper. Police had found Natasha hiding in the cupboard of her boyfriend's house in Rockhampton. An anonymous tip-off letter had prompted the search. It didn't take long for Natasha to become the girl in the cupboard. 
Although this became synonymous with the case, Natasha had only hidden in the cupboard to avoid the police search. For the most part, she moved about freely inside the house and rarely left, except for a handful of trips to the beach made in the middle of the night. There was never any suggestion Natasha had been held against her will. She had run away with her boyfriend, Scott Black, who was seven years her senior. In fact, Natasha later testified that Scott had tried several times to convince her to go home, but the lie had become too big, so she stayed hidden. SES coordinator Eddie Cowie, who you remember from earlier episodes, explains how these developments shocked everyone involved in the initial searches for Natasha. I was um, ironically dealing with police on another matter at that time, and, um, and when the word came through... Um, it was, um, it was um, certainly initially, um, you know, has that been reported correctly? Um, because SES had been involved in literally thousands of hours of searching specifically for Natasha. And, um, and um, you know, and, and we did that with the, 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 um, the belief that Natasha was missing. Um, there was a, a strong level of um, frustration, I think, that, um, you know, thousands of hours of um, volunteer time had been unnecessarily um, put into a search, but again, um, there were probably just as many police hours and, and other community hours that had gone into that very same investigation. This sensational twist was not enough to sway the jury, though, and on the 9th of May 2003, the jury found him guilty of murdering Beverly Lego and Sylvia Benedetti and of Julie Turner's manslaughter. It was then that the grisly details of each of their deaths was confirmed. There was no cause of death ever determined for 39-year-old Julie, whose skeletal remains were found on the 21st of December in 2001. Her skull was never found and it's possible it could have been a significant piece of evidence given the other women had head injuries. But Fraser did tell the police where they could find Julie's bra and a sandal strap on another property. He also gave two contrasting accounts of her death, in the first version, Fraser met Julie outside the nightclub where she was last seen and offered her a lift home. They argued and he struck her in the throat and killed her. In the second version, he claimed he had instead strangled her with her own bra on the land where it would later be found by police. 36-year-old Beverly was killed on the 1st of March 1999. Her body was found on the same day as Julie's in December 2001. She was naked and lying on the ground, covered by lantana and with a bra and black underpants tied around her neck. Her skull had substantial injuries. Sylvia's skeletal remains were found by a member of the public around the 20th of November 2000, more than a year before the other women were found. She too was naked and partially buried in the sand. She'd been hit multiple times on the left side of the face, which was determined to be her cause of death. Police linked Sylvia to Fraser's car through drops of blood in his car and on a cigarette paper in the glove box. The verdicts made Fraser Queensland's first convicted serial killer and gave some sense of justice to the families of the women he had killed. Nearly seven years into his life sentences, on Boxing Day 2006, Fraser was admitted to hospital in Brisbane with chest pains. Just three hours and 20 minutes into 2007, Fraser had another heart attack and died. This meant there was no chance of knowing with any certainty whether he had killed anyone else. But plenty of people have speculated that Fraser did indeed kill other women. 
In the last episode, prison informant Alan Quinn explained that Fraser had talked about up to a dozen other women he had killed who had never been found. Fraser Pierce also believes there are many other people out there who he harmed. I do remember one of his um, legal representatives saying early in the day that he treats females like chattels. And um, that is, he doesn't see them as as really being human, but more he's um, something for him to use to his own satisfaction. He was um, a chilling person. And, uh, and that photo, I remember that photo we discovered Way after, well, not, well, after his conviction, I was um, actually going through a gardening file when I came across a picture of Lenny Fraser at a um, prison work group at the cave school during holidays. But it was um, a nice, friendly photo of Lenny Lenny Fraser. Yeah, laying some turf for the good good. Uh, the cave's community, but um, but that was always a that was a chilling photograph. I remember because he he was smiling nicely at the camera, like, and I can imagine a few of his victims would have seen that smile. The photograph Fraser is talking about was published in the Morning Bulletin with a little gardening story on the first of February, nineteen ninety four. The image shows Fraser rolling out turf, smiling at the camera. The article explains that Fraser is part of the prison work crew landscaping the Caves State School on weekends. That's the school near Etna Creek Prison. Fraser is quoted as saying, I enjoy doing it for the kids and I'm doing something for the community. We don't know how many other people he killed because we know he killed the four here and that was his intent. You know, it was just a matter of time and you're not telling me that um, a man capable of that and the rapes he did in Sydney and the rapes he did in Mackay and the amount of missing people no, that are still um, unaccounted for or the murders are still unresolved, I think Lenny's handprint is elsewhere. Aside from Fraser's own statements, there's chilling evidence that he has harmed more people. When police searched his house as they frantically looked for Cura, they found evidence that still sends chills up my spine. Fraser had collected four ponytails of human hair, hacked off above a hairband. Despite tests in Australia and the US, police have never been able to link the hair to any of the women Fraser killed or any other missing women in Australia. Given the tens of thousands of people who are still missing in Australia and Fraser's history, I also believe he had killed before Rockhampton. You've heard about Fraser's lengthy record for sexual assault that he was released on parole after serving seven years of a 21-year sentence for a series of violent attacks. So why was a man who had shown over and over again how violent he could be allowed back on our streets? It still shakes me that he was released from New South Wales after seven years of a 21-year term after being deemed an untreatable psychopath. And that is a shocker from the authorities because they were just letting... Uh, you know, they're letting a wild animal loose on society. Basically, back then the legal system didn't have any legislation where sex offenders might face indefinite detention. Since the death penalty was abolished in 1973, life in prison without the possibility of parole has been the harshest sentence which could be handed down in Australia. But it's usually reserved for the worst killers. 
And in the 1970s, there was no evidence that Fraser was a killer. I suppose that's what came out of it. A lot was um, how Lenny was released into the community and a few prison officers said they knew it would just be a matter of time before he re-offended. So he was a ticking time bomb and he ended up killing four people. So that was always hard to bear, I think, that knowledge that um, there was nothing to protect us from him and he should never have been released. He was obviously... They determined he was... They could tell it, but there was no process to, um, to protect us. Although there was no way to protect our community from Fraser, there is no doubting the professionalism of the police involved in catching him in Rockhampton and building a solid case against him. I just really admire the police for the way they put this case together because it was very difficult uh, to... And they, they did a terrific job. They did everything they could and they played... Um, yeah, they, they, did, they used all their, uh, all their experience and skills to, to get the evidence and to get a watertight case. I mean, we had a lot of, a lot of metre attention. And you can't... Yeah, no one wants that metre attention, but that's just life. It happens. So, but yeah, no, that's um, something um, that'll be forever in the chapter. But um, you know, I think we're, yeah, we are, a, we're a safe place as long as the authorities do their job with um, untreatable psychopaths. Is there anything that can be done with psychopaths like Fraser? Could anyone have stopped him becoming a killer? Dr Wayne Petherick, a criminologist from Bond University, says there was almost nothing we could have done to prevent the escalation from rape to murder. Looking at somebody with Leonard John Fraser's fairly extensive offence history and the the degree or the nature of severity of the sexual crimes he committed against women, I actually don't believe that there was really anything that could have been done to prevent him from from escalating to to murder or to committing those other more um, serious violent crimes. Uh, We don't necessarily have the tools today to be able to predict from things like brain scans or EEGs or any of those sort of uh, biometric type instruments, um, even even the behavioural type measures. We, re- we don't really have the tools to be able to predict who's going to go on and, and become an offender like him. Uh, really, all we have is sort of being able to react to them as swiftly as possible and try to prevent the impact that is usually trying to um, stop them from from accruing a higher victim count through things like investigation, good modern scientific uh, principles and techniques, um, other techniques like applied crime analysis or criminal profiling. Uh, But the reality is for offenders like him, we're really going to be quite reactive rather than being proactive in, you know, preventing somebody like him from becoming a criminal, especially in his case. During one of Fraser's prison sentences, when he was 23 years old, he was diagnosed as a psychopath. He was said to have quite a low IQ, um, to, to in fact to be even having problems, to have problems spelling his own name or writing his own name. And what that really means is not only intellectually do we have problems, that means that he's not able to predict the consequences of his behaviour. He's going to have a lot of frontal lobe dysfunction, which includes things like high levels of impulsivity, poor behavioural control, poor, poor control over his own behaviour, 
when he's in a sort of a fairly uh, a highly emotional state um, the lower frontal lobe activity is really going to hand control back over to the limbic system which is the sort of more primitive emotional brain and so he's not going to be able to do things like curb his own behavior his emotions are going to run away and get the better of him and that's probably going to lead to more serious violent type crimes. Wayne is an Associate Professor of Criminology and has extensively researched and written about serial crime, forensic victimology and forensic criminology. He's also worked with police on several homicide and stalking cases, so I wanted to speak to him about psychopathy in a more general sense, to try and understand the types of people who become serial killers. Uh, there is a bit of a tendency to believe that serial killers are somehow different to, to other people and that therefore they must have, uh, you know, what is commonly referred to as a mark of Cain, that is some sort of identifying features or characteristics that actually sets them apart. The harsh reality though is the majority of serial killers are actually normal people. They live relatively normal lives outside of their killing and they can be employees or employers as in the case of people like John Wayne Gacy who was also known as the killer clown. They can be parents, they can be uh, brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and aunties and uncles and a lot of them actually get away with their crimes because they are quite unremarkable. Serial offenders, not just serial killers, do seem to have similar personality traits though. They're not all psychopaths, but Wayne explains these offenders do tend to have personality disorders with similar characteristics to those of psychopaths. It affects them in things like um, their being egocentric or narcissistic. Uh, they tend to be very glib. Um, they have a lot of you know, superficial charm, but when you scratch the surface, there's not really anything behind that. Um, because they commit crimes over and over again, one of the things that they don't tend to have is, is empathy for other people, and they also don't have remorse for their crimes. Um, so if they were to do something, for example, like cry, that would usually be very self-serving because that helps them convince you that they're actually sorry for what they've done when really what they're sorry about is getting caught in the end. Um, they also tend to live lives uh, pretty filled with deceit and they, they tend to be conning and also very manipulative, um, shallow emotions, quite poor behavioural controls as well. Um, they can have early behavioural problems or at least some very unusual behaviour in the early years. It's estimated that 15 to 20% of the people in American prisons are psychopaths and studies show they tend to commit crimes and then re-offend more frequently than non-psychopathic people. But as Wayne explains, this is a disproportionately high number compared to the number of people with psychopathy among the general population. The term psychopath is often used interchangeably with other, other terms as well. For example, um, one of the probably the most common ones is, is sociopath. Um, a psychopath that's argued is somebody who's really sort of uh, effectively born that way. Um, their, uh, the psychopathy is a function of their, their wiring, basically. Um, some people argue that a sociopath is really somebody who learns to be sociopathic uh, through their experience, through reinforcement, through their interactions with others and through you know successes and failures, things they try. Um, the, the actual behavioural characteristics 
things like uh, being egocentric, lacking remorse, lacking empathy, uh, not not being wanting to be held responsible for their behaviours and stuff. The characteristics are basically the same. It's just really the origin, um, one being nature and the other one being nurture. According to Wayne, there is little chance of rehabilitating a psychopath like Fraser. In fact, he says trying to change a psychopath could even make them a more volatile predator. They've done research on people who are psychopaths especially and they found that when you put them in treatment programs it uh, very often doesn't make them better, it makes them actually much worse psychopaths because they get put into group environments where people talk about their feelings and what makes them upset and basically that just gives the psychopath more ammunition to use against them. It's still incredibly difficult for authorities to predict which people will become violent serial offenders. Queensland was the first state in Australia to introduce harsh preventative detention laws aimed directly at sex offenders. If similar laws had existed in New South Wales in the 1970s, Fraser could potentially have been detained rather than being released on parole. In hindsight, it's obvious Fraser shouldn't have been released on parole, and there could have been grounds for indefinite detention. But as Wayne explains, indefinite detention and preventative detention are both contentious issues. Realistically, what we're talking about is a fairly small population of offenders who um, commit a disproportionate amount of the crime. But I guess it comes back to whether or not you want to spend a large amount of money to try to deal with a what is effectively a small offender population. And so some of the existing laws are probably quite capable at dealing with those kinds of offenders. But obviously when you've got people uh, who have a large number of offences over a long period of time with a large number of victims, then we may need a bit more sort of specific um, legislation or practices or techniques to be able to deal with them. And the law has changed and sort of responded to this. And there's been a number of things introduced or discussed, um, things like um, violent sexual offender registries, um, monitoring increased reporting and accountability amongst these offenders and also looking at things like you know being getting more truthful sentencing uh, but also things like um, putting uh, in place uh, ways to I guess prevent these offenders from getting parole or applying for early parole and stuff like that. That landmark Queensland legislation I mentioned earlier was the Dangerous Prisoner Sexual Offenders Act. It was introduced in 2003, just a few months after Fraser was handed two more indefinite sentences for murder. The main rationale for the law was actually the impending release of serial sex offender Robert John Farden. He has an appalling history of crimes against children and was due to be released just weeks after this law was introduced, having served 14 years for a violent rape. He served another decade in prison on preventative detention orders until he was released on strict supervision in 2013. The harshest conditions were dropped earlier this year. When the Dangerous Prisoner Sexual Offenders Act was introduced, Farden challenged it in the High Court, but Australia's highest judicial power ruled that the Queensland law was acceptable. There was only one other similar Australian law before the 2003 Act, and the High Court had actually struck that out on the grounds that it was unjust. The previous laws had been introduced in New South Wales as the Community Protection Act in 1994. The problem was that it essentially ended up referring to just one prisoner, which is why it was found to be unlawful. 
In Queensland's 2003 Act, it was a section or type of offender who was being singled out. In this instance, sex offenders who have committed particularly violent acts or acts against children. The preventative detention orders lapse after one year when the prisoner can be released on strict supervision orders or the application can be rejected. Under the laws, the state must prove the prisoner is a danger to the community. This is where legal professionals have raised some concern because the standard of proof for evidence in these applications is less than that required to convince a jury in a trial. Hypothetically, if Queensland's laws had been in place in the 1990s, the state might have been able to argue for Fraser's continued detention and Julie, Beverly, Sylvia and Kira might still be alive. But that didn't happen. Instead, families lost people they loved. And to understand what that means, I need to take you inside one of those families. I want to talk about what happens when the case is closed. The killer is dead. The media goes silent. Because grief can't be summed up in a headline or a soundbite. Grief is a constant ordeal. So how does a mother carry on nurturing a child when she's also grieving her daughter's murder? Predator is a production of The Morning Bulletin, a News Corp publication. It's written by me, Michelle Gately, and recorded and produced by Alan Renneker. Thanks goes to Caroline Graham from Bond University and Astrid Edwards from Bad Producer Productions for consultation and advice throughout. Margaret Wood provided transcription services. Our thanks also to Eddie Cowie, Detective Senior Sergeant Carl Burgoyne, Alan Quinn, Wayne Petherick, Fraser Pierce, and especially Teresa Steinhardt, who also provided audio of Kira for the project. For full music credits, see the show notes. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on Apple iTunes, or listen and look through exclusive photo galleries and stories at themorningbulletin.com.au.